guys, and welcome to the Moms of Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I am doing just as well as possible, given the circumstances, I guess. I mean... It's just been a really weird week. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Time's not really a thing, and I don't even know. Yeah, we're, we're hanging in there. How are you? <laughs> doing well. Doing just as good as one can do in, uh, with what's going on. Nothing super exciting, which is fine. We're just staying home. We're social distancing ourselves. Can't social distance from the people in our own house, unfortunately, but... <laughs> <laughs> But that is a-okay. We're staying safe and healthy, and that's what matters. Yeah, yeah. So are we. We're staying in, except I like have there. I had to go take my son to the dentist today, and so we had to leave the house, and that was fine. And he just had to get a little cavity filled, so he got that taken care of, and everything was fine. And then we got home from his appointment, and he started immediately eating snacks like because there's tons of snacks in the house right now so he was like oh we're home I'm gonna eat snacks so he started eating snacks and I kind of like got busy I was folding a load of laundry and I all of a sudden look over and I see that my son has like blood pouring out of his (laughs) mouth and so I was like whoa like what's going on and he's just sitting there like it's like nothing nothing is happening and so then it dawned on me I'm like oh my gosh he has Novocaine so he is not feeling that he's literally chewing his lip (laughs) I just felt so bad for him and so it was just one of those moments of like well okay I guess this is what we're doing now so um but he's fine he I you know I tried to handle it as gracefully as possible. I was like, hey, buddy, like, can I have the grapes and you can drink a glass of water? And, and he <laughs> and was like, OK. And then, uh, <laughs> yeah. And then after I saw, you know, what it was like, I was like, oh, man, this is probably going to hurt after, you know, yeah. once the Novocaine wears off. But he ended up falling asleep on the couch, took a nap and he woke up and he said it doesn't hurt. But his lip is really big and fat. So I feel terrible. And uh, yeah, so now I can look forward to him biting it again, you know, and again and again, because it's so big. So I'm sure he'll be dealing with that now for a while. So that was <laughs> a very exciting thing that happened this week. And yeah, it was just one of those moments where I was like, okay, I mean, why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if not now, then when? So before we get into the episode, though, if you had bought tickets for our live show in Chicago, We were so excited to see you, and we are so, so bummed that that is going to have to be rescheduled for good reason. We all know what's going on right now in the world, and we want you to be safe and healthy, and we want everybody to come and have a really good time. It would be, I can't imagine going right now, meeting with people (laughs) and talking to people and trying (laughs) to make jokes in such a situation that we're in. It's different being in our homes, but being in like a live situation, I, oh my goodness, that just does not sound good. But if you purchase your tickets through the City Winery in Chicago, they will be emailing you once they get dates figured out. Of course, they're doing a million reschedules, so it's not just us. So be patient with them while they kind of work through that. And we'll have a new date, and we'll get that on the books, and we will go from there. And it will be great and better than ever, and we'll be even more prepared. We were already pretty prepared. And so just imagine how prepared we'll be next time. Yeah. <laughs> it'll be not a train wreck. It'll be, you know, like a small car wreck. That's all. That's all it'll be next time. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, we are really bummed out that we are not going to be doing that when we thought we were. But we will definitely do the show and we will keep you guys posted on 
the details yes. of that. So yeah, we'll be looking forward to getting a new date ourselves. We don't even know yet, as Melissa said. Just be patient and we will be excited to announce that soon. Yes. I hope. Yes. Okay, so this week's episode, you know, we were off last week and that was a nice little break for us, but now we're back at it this week and I'm super excited about this week's episode. I think a lot of people will really enjoy this story because there's a lot of fascinating elements that kind of go along with it and that's really something that I think appeals to a lot of true crime lovers and me in particular. I love the stories that have a lot of things going on with a one particular person where they have a really crazy background or a lot of different details about their life. So that is the case in this week's episode. And so all of the dynamics of the relationships in this story, everything kind of led up to this main event, which was the death of a well-known attorney in Reno, Nevada named Larry McNabney. And before we get into the story this week, we're going to tell you a little about Reno in this week's segment of We Googled This City. So while you're home and quarantined, here's some facts you can share with whoever you are socially distancing with. And trust me, after a week, you'll actually love these facts, guys. It's finally Google the city's time to shine. This is just useless information that you can throw with whoever you're stuck in a hole with. Okay, here we go. Reno is located in Nevada and has a population of around 248,000 as of the 2017 census. Nevada is actually the largest state that produces gold in the U.S., it's only second in the world behind South Africa. And this fact isn't funny, but if you're playing Trivial Pursuit during quarantine, you're welcome. The video for one of my favorite 80s songs, Take Me Home Tonight by Eddie Money, was filmed in Reno. If the song was to be updated to today, it may be named Take Me Anywhere But Home Tonight. <laughs> and lastly, Reno is the birthplace to blue jeans. That's right. Back in 1870, somebody asked a tailor by the name of Jacob Davis, which does not sound like a very 1870s name, does it? Sounds like somebody who'd be in your kid's class today. Um, but they asked Jacob Davis if he was able to make a pair of pants that were a little sturdier. Davis took the challenge on and added copper rivets to his design and paired with Levi Strauss to finance his pattern. And that's how we got jeans. So next time you wear your favorite pair of jeans, think of young Jacob. Without him, we wouldn't have jeans, nor would we have timeless hits like Baby's Got Her Blue Jeans On by Mel McDaniel or Blue Denim by Stevie Nicks. And who could forget the classic apple bottom jeans from my hometown hero, T-Pain. <laughs> <laughs> so Jacob, today and every day, we put on our boots with the fur and thank you from the apple bottom of our hearts. Go ahead, Mandy. <laughs> So when you hear the words personal injury attorney, you probably know the name of at least one in your local area, thanks to the catchy commercials that many of them have. Here in Central Florida, the one that comes to mind first for me is John Morgan and probably is the same case for you, Melissa. Morgan and Morgan for the people. We also have another guy, Dan Newland, who is not quite on John Morgan's level, but he is still one that I hear about a lot. So if you lived in or near Reno before 2001, there's a chance that you may have heard the name Larry McNabney before. Larry was well known in Las Vegas and the surrounding area for his commercials where he would wear a cowboy hat and he would speak to the camera while riding on a horse and, you know, pushing his legal services. He became known as the Marlboro Man and he was famous for taking high profile cases. Larry's journey to becoming a famous personal injury attorney began on December 19th, 1948, when he was born to his parents, Marie and Jim. 
As a child, he experienced the unimaginable loss of both his brother and his father. His older brother had returned from Vietnam and sadly succumbed to a drug addiction and eventually died of an overdose. Just three months later, Larry's grief-stricken father took his own life. In 1966, Larry graduated from Reno High School and went on to attend the University of Nevada, Reno. He obtained a bachelor's degree from the university in 1970. Larry then attended law school at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law, and in 1974, he graduated near the top of his class. Over the next several years, Larry would marry and divorce three times, and he also had three children named Kristen, Tavia, and Joseph. With no problem at all, Larry passed the bar in both California and Nevada and took a job working for the deputy public defender for Washoe County. A few years later, Larry branched out on his own and started a partnership with Ron J. Bath, and the two made a name for themselves representing clients in high-profile criminal cases. Larry was great at his job as a lawyer, thanks to his high-spirited and organized personality and the confidence that he brought to the table. It was said that he commanded the courtroom and that he was a consummate professional. By 1985, Larry's career had risen him to the level of being a special deputy district attorney, and he was a defense attorney in two of Nevada's most infamous cases. The first was the Harvey Casino bombing trial, where Larry was part of the team that represented John Burgess Sr., a man who had gambled all of his money away at a Harvey's Hotel Casino in Lake Tahoe and decided to plant a quote-unquote doomsday bomb in order to get back at the hotel. Once the bomb was planted, John sent a letter to the casino that stated that the bomb could not be moved or disabled, but if they met his demands, he would tell them how to disable it. On August 27, 1980, John was attempting to disarm the bomb when he accidentally set it off, causing $12 million in damage and forcing the hotel to close its doors for nearly a year. But luckily, no one was injured in this event. The other high-profile case that Larry was a part of was the company drug cartel trial. He and more than 10 other defense attorneys defended the 12 people who ran the interstate drug cartel. This particular cartel, the company, which is kind of a lame name for, (laughs) for, I mean, no disrespect cartel, but I just think you could have done better. The company used violence in their multi-million dollar operation in which they made and sold methamphetamines and operated a large marijuana plantation in Northern California. The cartel had attempted to kill a U.S. Forest Service employee as well as fired shots at police helicopters and planned the killings of state and federal narcotics agents and witnesses. They had also killed a disloyal member and made attempts to kill two others who had done the company wrong. I take back everything I said about their name. So the trial began in January of 1988 and ended up lasting over 16 months. The trial was so lengthy that there were over 30,000 pages of transcripts and the prosecution presented thousands of exhibits into evidence, including proof of over 2,000 narcotics transactions over an 11-year period. At the time, this was one of the longest federal drug trials in history. And it was really hard on Larry. He told the Los Angeles Times, quote, if I would have known it was going to go this long, I wouldn't have taken the case. I've gotten a divorce during this trial. I've gone through a lot of personal changes. I'm not saying it's directly the result of this trial, but the pressure has sped things up. I think I'm going to quit practicing after this is over. Seriously, maybe I'll play the flute or take a year off and do nothing. If I never set foot into a courtroom again after this, it will be too soon. So he did not enjoy. Yeah, <laughs> that was a rough sixteen months. That is so much time to to do anything 
anything, any one thing for 16 months. Oh my goodness. That would be really grueling. I feel like, especially with a a case like that where it's a cartel and there's like a, a lot of attorneys are involved and yeah, 16 months would be a really long time. Yeah. So when the company drug cartel trial finally came to an end in May of 1989 and all 12 defendants were convicted of 65 of the 71 counts against them, Larry made good on his word and he quit practicing law for the next three years. It was 1992 when he opened his first personal injury law office in Reno, and he would eventually go on to open offices in Las Vegas and Elko, Nevada. In 1995, Larry put an ad in the paper for help around the law office, and that's when he met the woman who would change the rest of his life. In July of that year, 29-year-old Elisa Barash responded to the Help Wanted ad, and after being incredibly impressed with her interview, Larry hired her on the spot. He really thought that Elisa was nothing short of amazing. He told his daughter Tavia that Elisa was brilliant and bright and that she handled things and helped really take a load off of his shoulders. On top of being extremely intelligent, her IQ was allegedly 140. She also had a very charming and bubbly personality and a friendly smile. Elisa also had a daughter named Haley, but it was unclear from the research in this case when Larry actually learned about the little girl. But at the time that Elisa was hired to the firm, Haley was living somewhere else and not with her mom. But we are going to get more into Haley and where she was in just a little bit. So once Elisa had settled down into her new job at the law firm, it didn't take very long before the relationship between she and Larry went from being a professional one to a personal one. After they kind of learned of their shared interest in wine and horses, the two started dating and those around them could see that they were really happy together. Although some of Larry's friends and family did think there was something off about Elisa but that they couldn't really put their finger on. They could tell that Larry was really happy, but Larry's daughter felt that Elisa put a wedge between her and her father, and she said that she wasn't allowed to call him anymore or see him whenever she wanted to, but she could tell and she knew that her dad cared for Elisa, so she didn't bring it up or want to start an argument over it or to ruin her dad's, you know, the good, the great time that he was having. Larry hadn't always had the best luck with women. As we mentioned earlier, he had already been married and divorced a few times, and one of the reasons that his relationships in the past had failed was partly due to the fact that Larry struggled with alcohol addiction at different points in his life. One friend of Larry's said that from time to time, Larry would disappear on alcohol binges and not show up again for weeks. He said, quote, it was like a void he was trying to fill and he never could fill. Those in Larry's life were really happy that he had found Elisa and that he cared for her so much. And they didn't want to interfere, even though there were what some might call red flags. So for one thing, people noticed that Elisa was never really interested in talking about her past. One of the attorneys that the couple knew was named Tom Mitchell, and he said that it was one of those situations where you would ask Elisa something simple, like where she went to high school, and the next thing you know, she would be talking to you about skiing. But Larry was enamored with Elisa. Within two months of starting her job at the law firm, Larry had already bought Elisa a new red Jaguar. He even bought a stable of horses and the two began riding in competitions and attending horse shows. Of course, Larry already had this previous love of horses as demonstrated in his commercials that he used for his law firm. 
At some point in late 1995, Elisa decided to bring her daughter Haley to Reno to stay with her and Larry. The couple was doing really well both in the office and at home until there was a little hiccup in December of 1995. And we're going to get right into what happened after a quick break for a word from this week's sponsors. I always have the best of intentions when it comes to making fun new recipes for my family, but I always end up reverting back to the old way of making the same four meals over and over again. It would get boring pretty fast if I didn't have HelloFresh to save me. My family's faces all light up when they see the latest HelloFresh delivery because they know their dinners this week are going to be amazing. I've loved using my meal kits to cook with my daughter. The directions are so simple and even have pictures to go along with it so that she can help make a meal that's easy to follow and delicious to eat. Last week, we made the figgy balsamic pork with roasted green beans and rosemary potatoes. My 11-year-old was not thrilled to try something figgy, and I was nervous as well, but everything we've had with HelloFresh has been absolutely delicious, and this was no exception. From the pork to the green beans to the rosemary potatoes, every bite was delicious, and we all cleaned our plates. With HelloFresh, there is something for everyone in your home, including low calorie, which is what Melissa and I tried this month, vegetarian and family friendly recipes every single week. HelloFresh can also save you time. The average trip to the grocery store takes 41 minutes, which is over 35 hours a year if you go once a week. HelloFresh is not only America's number one meal kit, they also care about sustainability and HelloFresh's carbon footprint is actually 25% lower than the store-bought grocery made meals. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsandMurder10 and use code MomsandMurder10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, go to HelloFresh.com slash MomsandMurder10 and use code MomsandMurder10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. In these unusual times, Rothy's hopes to brighten your day with beautiful, sustainable products and content. Have you ever bought a new pair of shoes and had to break them in? We've all really been there, and one minute you're enjoying a new pair of shoes on their maiden voyage, and the next thing you know, you've had them on five minutes too long, and now you hate them. That will never be a problem with Rothy's. Rothy's shoes are seamlessly knit with thread made from plastic water bottles, so they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on, and that means there is zero break-in period. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of why Rothy's are the best shoe I've ever owned. Rothy's are not only comfortable from the moment you put them on, but they are fashionable as well. Rothy's come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns. Rothy's are available in a range of styles. Plus, Rothy's always come with free shipping and free returns. I recently bought my second pair of Rothy's after I spotted a pair of limited edition sneakers in bubblegum. They are a very eye-catching shade of pink that adds a fun pop to my otherwise boring wardrobe. Now that I have two pairs of Rothy's, my biggest shoe problem is deciding which ones to wear. Rothy's has kept 50 million single-use plastic bottles out of landfills and transformed them into their signature thread, which is then knit into beautiful, sustainable, and comfortable shoes. Rothy's also recently began carrying purses, and they are absolutely gorgeous. Plus, they're sustainable, just like their amazing shoes. When we say we wear these shoes all the time, we aren't kidding. Anytime we see each other, we're both wearing our Rothy's 99% of the time. Check out all the amazing shoes and bags available right now at rothys.com slash moms. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S.com slash moms. Style and sustainability meet to create your new favorites. Head to rothys.com slash moms today. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were starting to get into the relationship dynamic and life that Larry and Elisa McNabney had and how things had been going very well for the new couple up until December of 1995. 
It was at that time that Larry's law firm was audited and Larry found out that Elisa had embezzled $74,000 from a trust account for one of Larry's clients. This was obviously a huge deal for Larry and for his reputation. He was publicly reprimanded and had to pay back the embezzled money, plus the cost of the disciplinary actions, and he was ordered to take two hours of legal ethics education. At the end of the ordeal, Elisa was no longer allowed to be a signatory on any trust accounts in any of Larry's law offices in Nevada. It seems like most people would probably consider this a relationship deal breaker, but that wasn't the case here. The following month, on January 6, 1996, Larry and Elisa got married in Reno. Following the shotgun wedding, the new couple packed up and left for Sacramento, California, where Larry opened a new law firm and the couple resumed their wine and horse hobbies in their new locale. Once the new firm was up and running in California, Larry put an ad in the paper for a position earning $3,000 a month as a part-time legal secretary. Since they were now in California, Elisa could once again be the signatory on trust accounts, that's a lot of faith to yeah. give someone who just got you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. Right? Like a ton <laughs> of trouble. You'd think you'd just say like, there's just no reason for you to be on there. I trust you, but like, you don't have to be on there. I don't need you to sign right. these things. Yeah. It does seem weird. Like, especially after there's already been this like huge incident that cost him a lot of money and yeah, like drug his name through the mud kind of by, by letting this happen. So I just think it's right. crazy that you know, that you would ever give somebody. Probably says a lot about their relationship. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I, I mean, because it doesn't make any sense otherwise. So soon after the ad for a legal secretary went up, a woman named Sarah Dutra turned up for an interview. Sarah was a young and bubbly woman who had only just graduated high school in 1998. At the time she applied for the job at Larry's law firm, she was studying art at California State University. She loved attending school and wanted to go to graduate school right after she finished her degree. Larry decided to hire Sarah to work at the firm. Despite there being nearly a decade between them, Elisa and Sarah hit it off immediately. Their relationship in the office and at work soon grew into a friendship outside of work, and rather quickly, the two women became inseparable besties. It was around this time that Elisa first started really taking advantage of Larry and the money that he had. She would take Sarah on these expensive shopping sprees and they would buy a lot of matching clothes, mostly Gucci outfits, and they would charge all of this to Larry's card. The women pretty much became attached at the hip and started doing absolutely everything together. And Sarah even started traveling to horse shows that Larry and Elisa would go on, even if they were out of town for the weekend. So as you can imagine, there was some serious tension between Larry and Sarah, and neither of them liked each other, and both of them were very vocal about it. But of course, Larry was in a tough position, and he, you know, he felt like Sarah had just kind of barged her way right into his life and into his marriage, and he really wanted her out of the picture, but he was scared of what Elisa's reaction would be if he were to just fire Sarah. So of course... Sarah didn't like Larry either because she pretty much just perceived him as her, you know, BFF's annoying husband and just kind of would rather spend her time with Elisa and not have to worry about him. So it got to a point where Sarah and Elisa were literally spending all of their free time with each other. The relationship between them was so intense that many people actually felt like if you were to look at them from the outside, you would think that they were the ones in a relationship with each other. 
it was clear to the outsiders that Sarah really dominated Elisa in their relationship. And she was behind a lot of the decisions that Elisa made, especially as it pertained to buying things. On September 10th, 2001, Larry and Elisa loaded up their horses and headed to a quarter horse show in Los Angeles for the weekend. It just so happened that Elisa's daughter, Haley, was away at a horseback riding school in Maine that month, so it worked perfectly for Elisa and Larry to get away. Sarah actually showed up at the hotel that the couple was staying at, which irritated Larry, although it really was nothing unusual at this point, and he was used to Sarah being the constant third wheel in his marriage. So Larry indulged in alcohol on this trip, even though he had previously given up drinking, and it is believed that an argument ensued between him and Sarah and Elisa. The next morning, September 11th, 2001, as we all know, things were very hectic across the entire country. Word traveled quickly about the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon that killed nearly 3,000 people and injured up to 6,000 more. In the midst of all the chaos, the McNabneys and Sarah Dutra checked out of the hotel and headed back to Sacramento. Life at the office resumed as usual, except for one thing. Larry never returned to work after that weekend in L.A., but it would be several weeks before anyone would catch on that something was wrong. Elisa, with the help of Sarah, ran Larry's law office as if he were still there, negotiating with lawyers and spending settlement money that came in from personal injury clients. She also hired a new employee named Ginger Miller. Having Ginger around to help with the office task would free Elisa and Sarah up to do more gallivanting. When Larry's family and friends started asking where she was, Elisa said that he was really just too sick to see anyone, including his own children. When clients of Larry's started looking for him, Elisa told them that he was making a lot of -of out-of-town court appearances. At first, no one was really alarmed that Larry wasn't available. After all, he was a really busy attorney, and those who knew him personally also knew about his past drunken vendors and thought that this was really just par for the course for Larry. But after a month with no sign of Larry, his kids started to question Elisa's story, and they really started to think that she may have been lying about their father's whereabouts. So they decided to hire a private investigator to help them find their father. Larry's daughter, Tavia, said, quote, What was strange to us was the length of time that she was saying dad was gone, that he was in places he wouldn't have been, end quote. Unfortunately, though, the PI was unable to locate Larry. Around this time, Haley returned from horseback riding school, and when she asked where Larry was, Elisa said that she and Larry had separated and that Larry had gone off to join a religious cult, which is a very specific (laughs) reason, but it's so specific (laughs) that you'd almost think like, okay, you know, that seems so out there in a way, but that you just be like, what? There's no real follow-up questions. It's not like, I don't know. It's one of those lies that's so specific. You Okay, that just makes sense. So in the meantime, Elisa was drastically changing her look. Between September and late November, she dropped 30 pounds, lightened her hair to a more blonde color, and started dressing as if she were 10 years younger. By the end of that year, Elisa had begun to sell off Larry's assets and give away his personal items. In total, she had around $500,000 worth of Larry's stuff, and she wasn't using the money to keep the office up and running. She was letting those payments get behind, and eventually she had no choice but to run the firm from home. At the end of November 2001, Ginger Miller, who was the woman that Elisa hired to help in the office, became very suspicious that maybe there was no Larry at all. 
She had been told by Elisa and Sarah to give several different explanations as to Larry's whereabouts, and she started to think that it was really weird that after working there for a month, she had actually never met the owner. During this time, of course, Ginger noticed a lot of shocking and unethical behavior happening around the office. For instance, Elisa and Sarah were forging Larry's signature on checks and documents and pretending that he were the one to actually sign them. As far as Ginger could tell, none of this added up to anything good, and she decided to secretly go to the police with her suspicions. At first, the police didn't really seem too concerned about Larry's disappearance, and they thought maybe he fled to escape the debt that he was in. But they kept in touch with Ginger and asked her to continue working in the office and keep giving them any information that she might learn. Police eventually called Elisa to discuss where her husband was. And Ginger remembered that this call really freaked Elisa out. And suddenly Elisa announced that she was going to be attending a horse show in Arizona. So she loaded a bunch of her belongings into her horse trailer and she hired somebody to move the trailer to Arizona for her. But unfortunately, Ginger had already tipped off the police about Elisa's plan to leave town and they were waiting for her when she finished loading her trailer. Somehow, Elisa caught on that the police were watching her and she managed to escape before they were able to catch up with her. She took off in her brand new red Jaguar on January 11th, 2002. Later that same day, Larry's son Joe reported him missing as well. By the time Larry's son Joe had reported his father missing on January 11th, 2002, they were already investigating Larry's wife, Elisa. Police were tipped off that Elisa had plans to leave town and that she had loaded her belongings into a horse trailer that she appeared to be using as a moving truck. When police showed up to move in on Elisa, she fled in her new Jaguar. The first person that police wanted to question once Elisa left town was Sarah Dutra. Sarah really downplayed her relationship with Elisa quite a bit, but she did admit that they had become close friends after she began working at the law office. She told police that Elisa had become more erratic when Larry disappeared and said that she began to miss more work than usual. Sarah also alleged that at some point in early January of 2002, Elisa invited her along to attend this horse show in Arizona since Larry wasn't around to go. Elisa allegedly told Sarah that her ticket was paid for, but when Sarah got to the airport, she learned that she did not have a ticket in her name, and when she tried to call Elisa, her phone was disconnected. Sarah told police she hadn't heard a thing from Elisa since then. The investigators already knew that Sarah and Elisa had a much closer relationship than she was leading on, and they believed that Sarah probably still knew more information than she was giving them, but they had nothing to hold on her, so they let her go. A short time later, on February 5th, 2002, an employee at San Joaquin Vineyard spotted something that would provide a huge break in this case. Sticking up out of the ground near a grapevine was a human leg. It was Larry's body. Detectives and crime scene technicians swarmed in to process the scene and to take Larry's remains in for an autopsy. The initial exam revealed no clues as to how or why Larry had died. There were no external signs of trauma to suggest a cause of death. Another thing that was puzzling was that Larry's body wasn't as decomposed as it should have been if he had been dead since September, which was now over three months before. It was believed that his body had been somehow kept cold all this time and that whoever had buried it at the vineyard had done so recently. Once Larry's body had been discovered, his family held his funeral on February 16, 2002 at Ross Burke and Noble Mortuary in Reno. Further testing from Larry's autopsy later revealed his cause of death. 
he died of an overdose, but not maybe what you might think of first. He actually overdosed on horse tranquilizers. So now that the police had a body and a cause of death, they focused their efforts on solving Larry's murder. Friends of Larry and Elisa, as well as family of Larry's, told the police that they had concerns and suspicions about Elisa from the beginning, but that they were all unnerved by how she behaved since Larry had been last seen. Elisa had been selling all of Larry's assets and police agreed that this was suspicious and they really moved Elisa to the top of their suspect list. The more people that the detectives talked to, the more alarmed they were by what they were hearing. One acquaintance that the couple knew from horse shows named Evan Rees told police that while they were at a horse show in Susanville, California, Elisa casually just asked him if it were possible to kill a person with horse tranquilizers. It wasn't long before an all-out manhunt was underway to locate Elisa, but they were stopped in their tracks pretty early on when they realized that there was actually no such person as Elisa McNabney. Police could find no record or driver's license, no social security number, or any trace of anyone by that name ever even existing. Detectives soon stormed Larry's law office, but when they arrived, it was empty and there was no sign of Elisa, but they did still have the horse trailer full of her belongings to search through. Everything inside this trailer was really thrown in haphazardly, but upon searching through it, they located a file that had the name Laren Renee Sims Jordan. When they looked up that name, they discovered a whole treasure trove of information, including a rap sheet that was 113 pages long and included charges of credit card fraud, parole violations, and grand theft. Laren had been using the name Elisa as an alias, and it became the main goal to find out who this mysterious woman was and to figure out what, if anything, she had done to Larry. A warrant was issued for Laren's arrest and a $10,000 reward was announced for information leading to her arrest. Police followed Laren's trail and discovered an enormous backstory that had led up to this point in her life. Laren Renee Sims was born on January 20th, 1966 in Attleboro, Massachusetts to parents Jesse and Jackie. Her parents did their best to raise Laren right, but according to her mom, Laren never liked being told what to do, and her attitude became harder and harder to control the older she got. Jackie said that Laren had so much to offer, but that she got frustrated very easily. She was raised in Brooksville, Florida, which is directly west of Orlando by about 70 miles. And Brooksville is a very small country town, and Laren wanted to branch out and have more experiences. She was extremely intelligent with an IQ of 140, and she was always at the top of her class. But in a really shocking move, right before she was about to graduate high school, she dropped out. Some people thought Laren was extremely attractive, while others thought she was nothing really special, but those who knew her all agreed that she was conniving, clever, intelligent, and able to sweet talk and con anyone. Her own brother said that half of her problem was that she was too good looking and that guys would do really anything for her. As a teenager, Laren was caught writing bad checks, and her parents had her evaluated by a psychiatrist. That's when she had her IQ tested. Despite being very smart, Laren had several disciplinary problems throughout high school, and she skipped school a lot. Teachers described her as being moody, distant, and stubborn, and classmates remembered her as being outgoing and rebellious. When Laren was just 18 years old, she married her first husband, Virgil Jordan, who fathered Laren's daughter, Haley. The relationship was short-lived, and by the time Laren was 20, the young couple were divorced. 
After this failed marriage, Laren began stealing and conning people. Her life seemed to really take a turn, and she made one bad decision after another. A few years later, Laren had another child with a man named Kirk. They had a son named Cole, who was born with cerebral palsy. According to Laren's brother, by the late 1980s, Laren had started dating a string of what he called losers. In one of Laren's relationships, the boyfriend talked her into breaking into his ex-wife's house to steal the Christmas presents from under the tree. He convinced her to do it by saying that the gifts actually belonged to him and that he wanted to give them to his kids. Laren ended up getting arrested for grand theft and was charged in another burglary and theft just a few months later. She received probation for these two offenses. So Laren wasn't one to be held down, and she eventually decided to violate her parole and attend a hockey game in Tampa. Unfortunately, her probation officer happened to be at the same game and saw her there. And so she was arrested and spent nine months in jail. But quickly after she was released, she was caught using a stolen credit card and was forced to actually wear an ankle monitor. In early 1993, Laren went on the run. This was the first time that she changed her name to avoid being found. She would eventually use 38 different aliases over her lifetime. If you get that many aliases, do you just turn around anytime anyone says any name? If somebody just says, like, looks in your direction? Can you imagine? I would be so confused. Like, I can't even imagine or fathom changing my name for a non-nefarious reason and then having to like remember that name and like learn a new identity like imagine if you were in the witness protection program or something and you actually had to get a new identity it would be so hard I would never remember like I don't understand people who have aliases it really blows my mind that they can keep it all together and like keep track of everything yeah I don't know I mean you've got to think like if I if I if I do this wrong, if I screw up, then the jig is up. So I guess if you're like threatened with maybe prison time, you could probably yeah. <laughs> put your brain cells together to remember it. So while Laren had been on one of her jail stints, she had somehow managed to see the social security number of another inmate named Elizabeth Barash. And the highly intelligent Laren just m- memorized this person's social security number in jail, which is just mind blowing to me that she could see this person's number And just memorize it like she didn't have anything to write it down with or save it, you know, and she just memorized it and later on decided to take over Elizabeth Barash's identity and was like, oh, you know what? Let me just dig down into my memory. And I know the person I know this person's social security number. Just crazy to me that she was able to do that. I wouldn't have even been able to guess how to spell this lady's name, first name or last name. I would have probably gotten wrong. I can't imagine (laughs) memorizing somebody's social. So once Laren had decided to take over this identity, she pretty much just left like a thief in the night. And she took her daughter Haley with her. And Haley was seven years old at the time. She did not take her five-year-old son Cole because of him having cerebral palsy. But she told Haley that they needed to leave because her father was trying to get custody of her. It was March 23rd, 1993, when Laren cut off her ankle monitor and took off with Haley. They headed west and found themselves in Las Vegas, where Laren, who was now going by Elisa, rented an apartment and started working as a manager in a chiropractor's office. Although she was going by a new name, Haley continued to go by her real name, which was Haley Jordan. One thing to note about Laren is that she had a knack for blending in with her surroundings and making herself appear to be someone different than who she was, specifically in situations where it would suit her, such as seducing men to take care of her. While living in Vegas, Elisa met Ken Redelsberger and began a relationship. 
Ken was very into the outdoors and he loved to camp and fish. And so Elisa pretended to also love these things. She played it off really well and Ken really believed that they had a lot in common. Their romance blossomed and Ken eventually asked Elisa and Haley to move in with him. Once Elisa was in, she went through Ken's bills and found a credit card of his. She then stole the card and maxed it out immediately. When Ken got the bill a month later, he asked Elisa to move out, but they got back together very quickly and ended up getting married in 1994. This is just mind blowing to me because whenever you think about basically this is what happened with Larry when she embezzled the money from his firm and then a month later he turned around and married her. And it's just like, how does she get these people to like look past these things that she's done, even though their relationships are so new and so fresh and they don't really even know her. And she does, you know, she steals from them. And then a month later, they're like, let's get married. Like, I want to know how she pulled that off so many times in her life. Yeah, I have absolutely no idea. But you've got to once you're caught, I guess you've got to lay it on pretty thick after that. So she's got to pull out all the tricks from her bag after that and really lock it down. But yeah, I don't understand that at all. You'd think they get married, she could convince them to marry her quickly. And then she'd commit her crimes. But no, she she was like, I'm going to do this. And then you're going to marry me. So she had a real knack for doing that, apparently. And things got worse after the wedding. Elisa continued to spend all of Ken's money. And after six short months, Ken was ready to throw in the towel. He knew his relationship with Elisa was not healthy and he filed for a divorce, but he let Elisa and Haley keep living there because he felt a responsibility to this little girl. It was the following summer, July of 1995, that Elisa took a job at Larry McNabney's law office. When Elisa and Larry started a romantic relationship, Ken was actually thrilled. He thought that Larry would finally take Elisa off of his hands. And it wasn't long before Elisa did move in with Larry, although her young daughter Haley continued to live with Ken. Elisa morphed herself from this outdoor loving type of girl to acting as a sophisticated legal secretary. She was really able to run Larry's life. She set his appointments and spoke with important people. And in late 1995, Larry and Elisa were going on a trip, but Ken said that he couldn't keep Haley that weekend because he was also going on a trip. Ken put Haley on a plane to Reno so that Elisa could pick her up, but Ken never saw Haley again. Elisa announced that she was going to have Haley live with her and Larry. Elisa only contacted Ken a couple more times, and all in all, she stole around $30,000 from him over the short time she knew him. Ken eventually moved on with his life and put Elisa behind him until the police questioned him after Larry McNabney was found dead and Elisa was a suspect. And we're going to get into what happened next after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. A lot of us are home right now teaching our kids whatever we can that YouTube hasn't taught them. And while searching the internet, I came across this fact that I wasn't aware of. Did you know that the bottom of a light bulb, the part that you screw into the light fixture has a name? Fun fact, it's called an Edison screw and it's actually came out over a hundred years ago. But the light fixtures in your house need to get updated more often than that. And the place to do it is Lamps Plus. Lamps Plus offers custom lighting options with more than 100 handcrafted colors that match lamp bases and shades to your own personal style. They have videos with design tips, inspirational photos with the latest trends. And one thing I really loved is that you can shop for every room in the house with their shop by room feature, making it super easy to figure out what goes where. Using this feature, I picked out the Cove Point light chandelier to hang in my dining room. I received it last week and I was amazed at what a huge difference it made in the room. It made it look overall so much warmer and inviting, which is exactly what I wanted. There is no reason to get lighting anywhere else. 
Lamps Plus is the nation's largest lighting retailer with over 55,000 designs, all from top brands, including Minka. Minka is known for decorative pieces that blend function and style using innovative materials. Right now, Lamps Plus is offering up to 50% off hundreds of lights, furniture, and decor during the biggest sale of the season from now until March 30th. That's up to 50% off during the Lamps Plus half-price days and sale through March 30th at lampsplus.com slash moms. Start saving right now at lampsplus.com slash moms. Life comes at you fast, but when you're looking for counseling, minutes can feel like hours and hours can feel like days. You want help quickly, but how will you fit it in your schedule? Our problems rarely arise during normal work hours, so why is counseling mainly available during normal business hours? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or maybe something that's preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp has you covered and at times that are convenient for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, grief, and more. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist without ever having to leave the house. BetterHelp is secure, convenient, and professional. If you ever find you want to change counselors, you can do so at any time with no additional charge. Financial aid is also available to those who qualify. Best of all, it is truly an affordable option, and Moms and Murder listeners get 10% off your first month. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love within 24 hours. Go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms for 10% off your first month. Again, for 10% off your first month, go to betterhelp.com moms and use discount code moms. And now back to the episode. Before the break, we were talking about how uh, this man, Ken, who had been dating Elisa before she met Larry, had just put Elisa's daughter, Haley, back on a plane to her and he never saw her again. Elisa decided that the child was going to live with her and Larry, and that was kind of the end of things between Elisa and this man, Ken, and that was, you know, the final tie between them that was cut off. So he didn't hear anything about her again until the police came questioning him regarding Larry McNabney's death. So Ken told investigators that Elisa's name was Elizabeth Barash when he first met her. And the police found an address for a woman by that name in West Palm Beach, Florida. However, when they arrived there, they found not the woman they were looking for, but instead they found the real Elizabeth Barash, who had her identity stolen by Laren while they were serving time together, as we said previously. Little did they know, Laren had actually already fled to Destin following Larry's murder, and she was living there, waiting tables at an upscale restaurant, as well as doing clerical work at a law office. And she had also changed her name once again to Shane Ivoroni. It's so interesting to me when people do aliases. I guess sometimes you actually steal other people's identities, right. but I wonder if they ever just make up the names. I guess not. I guess you have to have more than just a name. You have to have... An actual identity. Maybe, but I i mean, why not have fun with it at some point? You've had so many. Just take a few of your favorite things, put them together. Um, on 30 Rock, this is not important, but there's a doctor named Dr. Spachimin, which if you spell it out, it's Dr. Spaceman. So I always thought one of those things would be kind of fun <laughs> to have. So in this time, she also cut her hair and dyed it brown, and she dropped from a size 10 to a size 3. On the search to find Laren, police visited her parents who said they actually hadn't seen her in 10 years. 
But the police eventually had a stroke of luck when Laren's boss at the restaurant that she worked at reported that his credit card had been used to pay for a meal after Laren attended a Kid Rock concert with a man named Robert Murphy. So all of this kind of goes together and you'll see how this all leads up to the end of the story. So on March 14th, 2001, Laren's boss from the restaurant went to her other employer, Paul, at the law firm and told him what she had done in regards to stealing his credit card and using it. So the law office then decided, you know, we're just going to check her out. They looked at the Social Security number that Laren gave when she was hired. And to their surprise, this Social Security number came back to a man, which I guess makes sense if she was using the name Shane. I guess that could be a yeah guy or it can go either way. But yeah, that makes sense that it was that it came back to a man. Uh, So they alerted the police. But Laren caught on that something was up and she made a quick exit. She told her co-workers that she was going to go to the doctor. But instead, she ended up leaving work and she called Robert Murphy, who was the man that she had just been to the concert with and asked him to go out on a date with her. And then at the end of the night, she stole his truck and six hundred dollars from him. But she left him a note and the keys to her car and said that she would be bringing the truck back in just a few days. On March 15th, police located Laren's red Jaguar, but they were surprised to find Robert behind the wheel. And when he told them that Laren had stolen his truck, they started to look for that vehicle instead. It took a few days, but on March 18th, the truck was spotted abandoned at a Winn-Dixie near the beach. Officers ended up finding Laren sitting on the beach in a chair. And when they approached her, she simply said, I am the one you are looking for. Whoa, that's like uh, Breaking Bad. I'm the one who knocks. Like, that's some confidence. Yeah. Well, the police said, you know, they felt like she was tired of running and she was just ready to kind of, you know, surrender. So she was arrested without any trouble and charged with first degree murder. And she would have to be extradited to California, of course, for her trial. Following Laren's arrest, Haley went to live with Laren's parents. So Laren confessed to police that she had, in fact, murdered Larry. She alleged that he had a drinking problem and that he used drugs as well as abused her, and she claimed that when she confided in her new friend Sarah Dutra, it was Sarah who suggested that she kill Larry. According to Laren, she and Larry had gone to the horse show in Los Angeles on the weekend of September 9th, and Sarah went there to join them. She said that Larry had been using horse tranquilizers for fun that night and that he had passed out. So Sarah suggested that it would be a good time to kill him and that really all they needed to do was give him more tranquilizers and no one would find out. Laren claimed that both of the women took turns squirting the horse tranquilizers into Larry's mouth, but their plan didn't work. Larry didn't die. He woke up on September 10th and actually showed his horse at the horse show and then he went back to bed. Sarah and Laren believed that Larry was dead at this point, but when they tried to move him, they realized he was still alive, but he couldn't walk. The women had to think fast to come up with a solution for what to do with this heavily drugged man, so they decided to rent a wheelchair. On the morning of September 11th, in the midst of the news of the terrorist attacks here in the United States, Sarah and Laren wheeled a nearly unconscious Larry out of the hotel and put him into the back of the truck. And with everything going on, almost no one noticed them or paid any attention. 
the woman decided to drive out to Yosemite to bury Larry, but he still hadn't died at this point, and Laren really started to have second thoughts. She didn't want to bury him alive, so they kept driving and hoped that he would die. Obviously so terrible that you're just waiting for this person who you loved to die. You're just driving around like impatiently hoping for this person to die. Well, and it's like horrifying to think about it from Larry's perspective because he was on tranquilizers, but he was still... Mm -hmm he was conscious like he was alive and like knew what was happening he can't do anything he can't move it's just terrifying it's horrible yeah they eventually found themselves back at the house that larry shared with laren who only knew her as elisa when they got to the house larry said he wanted to sleep the next morning september 12th laren told police that larry was dead laren said that she and sarah then wrapped larry's body in a sheet put duct tape around it, and then placed his body inside a refrigerator in the garage while they tried to come up with a better plan. As we said earlier in the story, this better plan was to pretend that Larry was still alive and to continue to run his law firm and spend his money. Laren continued giving her confession to police and said that months after the murder, she and Sarah put Larry's body in the trunk of her car and drove to a Vegas hotel. Sarah allegedly stayed at the hotel with Larry's body and Laren went out looking for a spot to bury him, but she ran into a problem when she realized that the ground was too hard to dig. So the women then drove Larry's body back to California and they decided to bury him in this vineyard. Laren snuck in at around four o'clock in the morning and dug a hole and placed Larry's body inside. Investigators asked her how deep she dug the hole and she responded, quote, not deep enough, obviously. Finally, Laren told police that after the body was gone, she asked someone to come move the fridge away from the house. After hearing Laren's confession, the San Joaquin County Deputy District Attorney said, quote, this admission may be the only time she has told the truth in years. After Laren had confessed, she was able to visit with her family and see her son, Cole, who was now 16 and hadn't seen his mom in nine years. On March 31st, 2002, Laren took her own life in jail. She left a suicide note addressed to her attorney, Thomas Hogan. She put the note in an envelope, tore it into four pieces, put the pieces into a sandwich baggie and placed it in the corner of her cell. In the note, Laren described a hostile relationship with Larry and alleged that he first hit her on July 2nd, 1996. She said that she confided in a friend who also worked at the office at that time, and when Larry found out that she told the woman, he fired her. Laren wrote, quote, Tom, I think we both know it doesn't matter what kind of man Larry was. We murdered him. Of course, I should spend the rest of my life in prison. Sarah should, too. I wish I could change what happened, but I can't. Laren's note also alleged that Larry had threatened Haley and she believed that killing him saved her daughter from him. She also had some other interesting words in her note and she was kind of expressing an attraction and this admiration for her lawyer who she thought very highly of. Her lawyer later came out and said that he thought she was just distraught while she was writing this and like that those things didn't really you know, mean anything. Right. So finally, Laren ended her note by asking Tom, her lawyer, to sue the Hernando County Jail for not preventing her suicide. And she wanted whatever money was paid out to go to her two children. She said that she hoped they could move into their futures without this heavy burden and felt that she did them a favor by not putting them through their mother being on trial. After police heard Laren's side of the story, they arrested Sarah. 
They believed they had enough evidence to charge her as an accessory to murder at the very least. Sarah denied that Laren ever told her anything about Larry being abusive or that she should murder him and told the police that Laren was evil and was trying to pull her down with her. Sarah said that it was Laren who gave Larry the tranquilizer and who wanted to bury him alive in Yosemite. Sarah said that she was terrified of Laren and believed she would end up dead if she went to the police. Sarah was eventually charged with first-degree murder. Her trial began on January 16, 2003. Laren's confession, though, was not allowed into evidence in Sarah's trial. The prosecution presented their theory that Sarah was the true mastermind behind Larry's murder, and it was all motivated by the mutual dislike between them. Prosecutors alleged that it was somewhat of a love triangle situation where both Larry and Sarah wanted all of Laren, or Elisa's, attention, and Sarah was particularly loving the very fancy life that she was living on Larry's dime. It was believed that Larry had told Sarah that he was going to fire her two days before he was murdered, and that that was really the true motive behind the killing. Larry's own children agreed that Sarah was a driving force behind their father's murder. They believe that if it wasn't for Sarah's influence, he would actually still be alive, and that Laren really did love their dad before Sarah had come into the picture. Prosecution said that Sarah participated in this with her eyes wide open, and that she was more than willing to help, and also became closer with Laren after the murder. Sarah's defense was that Elisa was bored with Larry, so she decided to kill him, and then she manipulated Sarah into helping her cover it up. She claimed she was terrified of Laren and what she was capable of. But Haley actually testified that Sarah never once seemed scared of her mom. Ginger Miller, who was the woman that Laren hired after Larry's murder, testified that at the time that Larry was missing, Sarah and Laren laughed, shopped, ate, and even slept in the same bed together. They spent all of Larry's money, and Sarah pretty much moved into his house with Laren. They even cleared out Larry's side of the closet in the bathroom so that Sarah could put her stuff in there. After four days of deliberation, the jury found Sarah guilty of voluntary manslaughter and accessory to murder. On April 21, 2003, she was sentenced to 11 years in prison. She went to Central Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California, where she stayed until she was released on August 26, 2011 at 31 years old. Wow, what a story this was. I feel like this was kind of two stories in one because you have the terrible murder of Larry McNabney, but then I feel like... Laren's life story is a whole story of itself. You know, this whole history that she had and that Larry had no idea about and no one did until the police started digging into her and found out that this woman is not named Elisa. And actually, she's used many other names and aliases and has you know, committed crimes in the past and everything. Yeah, it is really a crazy story and super interesting, the backstory and kind of how things got to where where they ended. So thank you so much to Haley for researching this episode. This was really in-depth and really an interesting story and one I knew something about, but I had no idea all the background of Laren. Okay, Melissa, so are you ready to turn the page, as we say, and move on to our last thing before we go questions this week? I would love nothing more than to do that, Mandy. 
Me too. I know you posted in the Facebook group looking for new and fresh suggestions for things that we could talk about for lasting before we go. And, you know, everybody's brain is so just crazy this week. So we are going to answer some silly questions that are not serious. And hopefully you guys will enjoy them. I think they're good ones. I think you picked good ones, Melissa. I'm very happy and excited. Oh, wow. To answer this them. Is, <laughs> such a big moment for me. Thank you so much for the people that wrote them because I did literally nothing. Okay. So the first one is from A. Adrian and she has, I love this question, pros and cons of being tall versus being short. Mandy, do you want to kick off uh, some pros of being short? Okay. Pros. I don't know that there's a ton of pros. Honestly, you're going to hate my main happy pro, but it's very Mandy and very anti-Melissa. Um, I like being short because I enjoy hugging people that are taller than me. It makes me feel really <laughs> secure. Do we give you like, security? Imagine how we yes. feel. <laughs> it does. It really does. I enjoy like oh hugging pretty much anyone because everyone's taller than me and it's just really nice. I mean, I like hugging people shorter than me and mostly my kids only because that's the only people that are shorter than me. I like hugging but, people. You sound yeah. like Buddy the Elf. <laughs> <laughs> I do though. I'm a hugger. I am a hugger and I like hugging people, but I like being short. I like being the short person involved in a hug. It's, it's, it's a little weird. So now do you see why I'm not a big fan? I'm not a short person (laughs) in any hugs. I am the one providing comfort and I am a hot mess. So that's not helpful at all. But Mandy, another plus for being short is that your clothes just fit you. Like you don't have to think. I don't know. No, Melissa, if you, no, 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 no. Can you get it altered? Okay, so I know. Uh, yeah, I could if I wanted to. Okay, but like pants, you can't, they don't fit. They are so long. They're like. They can you cut ha- that you'd off. Have to get them. You cannot <laughs> add material. I can't get a waistband That's of extra. True. Okay. Yeah, there's just no, it's done. Once they've made it, you can't get it tucked. You can't untuck it. You're just screwed. You have to buy talls online like some sort of monster. <laughs> Wow. Okay. (laughs) It's been rough. (laughs) I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. So I don't know, but pros, I, I really like being my height. I don't think that it is a terrible life to live. I don't, (laughs) I'm not like, I, I don't think I would hate being taller, but like, I don't just sit around and wish that I was taller. I just accept that I'm a short person and that's just how it is. I, I mean, I, I like it. I feel like there's plenty of pros. I just, can't really think of them off the top of my head. Can I tell you another pro? Unless you're standing with me, no one will ask you how tall you are. If you're tall, people just will be in line behind you and say, oh, wow, how tall are you? And then immediately ask if you play basketball. So you are always, and I see that now with my daughter, she's five, five now. So anytime we go anywhere, people are like, whoa, how tall are you? And so I love it because Like, I'm like, yeah, I've gotten that my whole life. So at least she has a tall person to like commiserate with. But people never mean it rude, but they will never ask a person under 5'10 how tall they are. That's like looked at as offensive, (laughs) but tall people, they're like, hey, Jolly Green Giant, how tall are you? (laughs) (laughs) I like being tall though. Like, that's a fun, I don't know. I did not like it growing up. You were always taller than boys and everybody had a thing to say about that. It was good in sports, volleyball. It was wonderful to be tall. Um, it sucks with clothes big time. It sucks with clothes. I like anything I order. I know if they don't have tall, I just can't do it. And the only negative is when there's other tall people, you want to be the tallest. Like 
I <laughs> because why just be tall? You want to be the tallest one because then you're just I'm like the tall girl. So if there's another tall friend, then what am I? Am I the girl with a big forehead? Like there's something that you're going to describe me as and I'd rather it be the tall person. <laughs> <laughs> just let me have yeah, this. Yeah, I mean, I I didn't really name any cons about being short. I guess the only real con is obviously the one that you would think is that you can't reach things and you're like just too short. And that is really frustrating sometimes. And then you'll ask a taller person to help you. And then it's like they take it offensively that you're asking. I'm like, no, but that's like uh, our job to because you're (laughs) tall. Yeah. So we have to (laughs) hug you and console you and we have to reach for things for you. Tell me what we're getting out of this situation. You don't have to hug me. I never said anyone was forced to hug, but and I guess you're also not forced to get things on higher shelves for me either. But it is very nice if you do either one of those things, especially if you do them both. So you want somebody, <laughs> if you ever see Mandy out, please hand her something off the top shelf and hug her. Don't say a word to her. Just <laughs> grab a can of beans and give her a hug and just be on your way. I will pay you to do that. <laughs> oh, goodness. Those are good. But it's good. Accept yourself, however you are. That's just how you yeah. are. It's awesome. Just It's better to embrace it. Okay, Mandy, this really blew my mind. And I'm very excited on your opinions on this. This is from Cat F. And... Her question is, she says, this is a huge debate in my house this week. Favorite Pop-Tart flavor, and do you freeze it, toast it, or eat it straight out of the box? First of all, did not know freezing was an option. Did you? I didn't I didn't know that was an option. I never would have thought that. Are you interested I mean, now? I'm kind of interested. I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the <laughs> the week I've had that I'm, <laughs> I'm interested. Anything that will take a little bit of time, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Call it a science experiment for the kids. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So, okay. So I will answer first because my answer is, as usual, just very confusing and it's going to take me forever to get there. So maybe you do this too. Maybe you don't. I have certain flavors that I like of certain things. Me too. For example, when I eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, it has to be grape jelly. That's like the only kind I like. I don't want any other kind. I just want grape. And then I actually like grape flavored things a lot of the time. But then, for example, like maybe something else, I would not choose the grape option. I would choose like a different flavor for that specific thing. So this is kind of how I am with Pop-Tarts. So Pop-Tarts for me, the only ones I will even eat. Can we say it on count of three? Because I think it's the same one. Okay, it might be, but maybe it's not, but we can try. I hope there's no delay in this. One, two, three, strawberry frosted. (laughs) (laughs) I should have known. I got really cocky there. Yeah. So my favorite Pop-Tart is blueberry and I have to have it toasted. I love the warm, gooey, hot Pop-Tart. I have to have it toasted. I can also eat it out of the box just the way that it is room temperature as you would but I really love it toasted I like where you're going there I don't think I've had blueberry I love the blueberry it's my favorite flavor but like that's the only thing that I really eat blueberry flavor of like I would never I don't usually choose blueberry flavored anything but pop tarts is the one thing that I eat blueberry that's my that's my jam that's my pop tart jam (laughs) (laughs) but that's similar to me where I've eat the strawberry frosted one and I don't even 
I'm not entirely sure I've ever even tried another flavor, but I know that I like the strawberry one. So that's the one I always get. So I do it toasted or not. I don't care. I typically just eat it out of the package. I don't really care that much about it being toasted. It's so good when it is. See, I guess I don't really care about it that much either. And I will just eat it out of the package. But if I have time or patience rather to put it in the toaster for a little bit, it is so worth it. It's so good. Can I tell you a suggestion that somebody said that I had never even considered putting butter on it? So toasting Ew, it and putting butter on it. Oh, yeah. Maybe I can I'm see not how knocking that would be. anything this yes. week. No, I can see how that would be delicious. Actually, that sounds really good. <laughs> that I know. I hope we're changing everyone's life with whatever they have in their pantry <laughs> right now. <laughs> we just gave you recipes for the week. On <laughs> oh, goodness. I don't know. I love Pop-Tarts and this made me very hungry for Pop-Tarts. So this. Yeah, did not I know. I love them, too. Good. I actually haven't eaten a Pop-Tart in a long time. My kids don't like them, which is really weird because kids usually love Pop-Tarts. But right. You know, what I loved as a kid toaster strudel. Yes, I never too. had them in my house. But my neighbors had them. They had the best snacks. They had gusher, gushers. They had everything. Oh, gosh. I hated my friends who got lucky and had, like, cool snacks right? and foods they had, and like, stuff. I know. They they always had the best snacks. So I remember going over there, and they just made me a toaster strudel for no reason. Like, it was not somebody's birthday or anything. Yeah. And I was just like, <laughs> what is going on here? Why aren't you giving me a box of raisins? <laughs> <laughs> Or like, a, what did we call it? Like uh, ants on a log, banana with peanut butter and raisins. I thought that was like some very classy oh stuff to gosh, serve here. I know. <laughs> serve that friends. was so me as a kid. And like, I actually feel terrible and uh, we can talk a little, ex- this is totally not related to Pop-Tarts, but I always feel bad for my kids because I was always raised in a house that never had snacks like we didn't have sodas we didn't have chips I didn't get fruit by the foot I didn't get like any anything like that even though I always wanted those things my mom was like no they're not necessary it's like not a necessity and you don't need to have it so I never did and so now I don't buy that kind of stuff for my kids like I really don't ever buy we don't really ever have pop tarts I do buy fruit snacks every now and then but we don't really eat fruit snacks I never buy chips and so my son now that we're all home and spending so much time together and my kids want to eat constantly my son had like a full breakdown the other day because and like I don't know where this came from but he came up to me and he's like on the verge of tears and he was like why don't we ever have chips and dip in this house? And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, where is this coming from? And he was like, I just want chips and dip. And he's like, we never have that. And I'm like, you're right. Like we don't, cause I don't buy that. But like, I didn't know I was like affecting you so bad. <laughs> like, You really are. You were just ruining <laughs> lives over there. That's so funny. So yeah, I'm going to have to get some chips and dip uh, as soon as it's safe for me to do so. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There's something to look forward to, right? Right. All right. So we're going to play the trailer for Criminal Conduct, which if you're listening to this on Tuesday, I don't know the date because dates don't matter anymore. It came out the day before Monday. So this show is already out and you should definitely listen to it because it's so good. And I've already gotten to listen to an episode and it's awesome. So go ahead and after you listen to us, click subscribe and go ahead and listen to the first episode. It's there. And just stay and listen to the promo and then move over there. Do it in that order or whichever order you want. Just subscribe. All right, guys, we will see you next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. 911. Hey, 
Uh, please get something to my office. What's please, going on? Please, my girlfriend, I think she just shot herself in blood everywhere, please. She what? She shot herself. It's, please. Ma'am, ma'am, I need you to calm down. Sir, it's sir. Ma'am, listen it's to sir. me. It's sir, listen, hang on. Let me tell you the truth. I work with y'all. Get someone here now. This is Jeremy Banks. He's calling for help because his girlfriend is lying in a pool of her own blood, holding his gun. You see, Jeremy Banks is actually a sheriff's deputy in St. Augustine, Florida. And his girlfriend, Michelle O'Connell, well, she wasn't supposed to die tonight. John, you've worked in law enforcement. What's striking about this 911 call? There's so much about the 911 call that got my attention. Seconds count in a life or death situation, but Jeremy Banks chose to take the time to demand the dispatcher call him sir. Her disrespecting him had to be immediately addressed. Because the way Jeremy set the stage for us, he told our dispatcher that my girlfriend shot herself, but you get there and there's just too much that didn't, didn't play out right. The sheriff had already made up his mind. The case was a suicide, tragic suicide. That truthfully could have been predicted. Jeremy Banks had nothing to do with that case. A year ago, when we first started looking into this story, we learned that someone else had already been doing their own investigation. Not a detective, not a private investigator, but a private citizen named Eli Washtock. And he was digging up all kinds of new information. But then one day, before he could finish his investigation, somebody killed him. New at 10, only Action News Jax was able to get to the condo. And you can see there the door has been replaced. Someone was after them. So what, what did you think when you heard he was killed? Yeah, he asked me, there, there's no doubt in my mind. It's all tied together somehow. Dude, he, he was a quiet guy. The only thing he was doing with his life was investigating this murder. And all of a sudden, boom, supposedly he's turned up some good stuff and now he's gone. What happened to all the evidence he collected? And why was someone after him? Now, we're picking up the Michelle O'Connell death investigation where he left off. From the creators of Twisted and Pretend Podcasts, this is Criminal Conduct, Season 1, an investigative podcast looking into the death of Michelle O'Connell and the murder of Eli Washtock.